the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Friday, December 29th, 2023, our last show of the year. Um, good to have Mr. Bill here. David Dahl, thank you for getting us. To, were you with us the whole year? Yeah. I think you were. I, I have been Your in first some capacity. full year. I, yes, I was uh, here in a partial capacity nice. until April. Nice. So, yes, I've been on board. Well, let me uh, thank again uh, our sponsors. The 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio from Once We Emanate is brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. I so did not want to start the show this way, but I must. Maine Secretary of State Sheena Bellows, not an attorney, not a judge, not even a law school graduate, held an administrative hearing on what, in her opinion, issued yesterday, even she states is a, quote, novel constitutional question, close quote. You know what that question is? Can a former president and the leading contender for the presidency now, less than a year before an election, who satisfies all the requirements of the presidency, as he did in 2016, as he did in 2020, be barred from running for that office in said state because on claim that he encouraged or conspired in an insurrection. As she goes on to write in her proceeding, regular rules of hearsay and foundation for evidence will not apply here, will not apply in her decision, and she can use what she calls relaxed standards, her words. Does nobody blush anymore? Remember, this is in disqualifying a former president and current candidate for president under a novel constitutional question. And we're going to use relaxed standards here. Her, her words. She then uses a government accountability report, a GAO report, another administrative agency, to determine an insurrection took place on January 6th. Then... Secretary Bellows finds the cause to use a legal standard even lower than that of the state of Washington court. Again, we're trying to find guilt of causing or supporting an insurrection. Insurrection is a crime identified in Title 18 of the U.S. Criminal Code. And as a crime, it requires, as all crimes do, a finding of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The Washington courts lowered that standard for Donald Trump. They were, after all, civil courts to what they and is called a clear and convincing standard. That is a lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. Not good enough for finding criminal liability, but evidently good enough for a civil court to invent a standard in transmogrifying a criminal charge for civil purposes. Civil purposes. The Washington standard of clear and convincing evidence generally means more probable than not. 
But even that middle or middling standard was too high for Maine's Secretary of State yesterday, she a former executive director of the ACLU, no less, who said she arrived at her conclusions about the culpability of Donald Trump with a preponderance of the evidence standard. That is to say, a standard even lower than clear and convincing, even lower than what the Washington courts found. Perhaps... At this rate of ongoing lowered standards of judgment, the next administrator or judge will use a standard that reads something like, I just happen to believe this. So the main secretary of state used the lowest legal standard possible to find Donald Trump liable or guilty. I'm not sure which word to use because, again, guilt only comes from a criminal conviction and with a crime determined in a court of criminal law with criminal standards. Liability comes from a civil court with far lower standards. But again, too, that's what makes this such a novelty in and of itself. A civil court, nay, a civil administrator, not even a court, not even elected by the people of the state of Maine, finds criminal liability in an administrative and civil proceeding to satisfy an arbitrary standard in order to execute an order, finding Donald Trump to have engaged in insurrection in order to find Donald Trump unauthorized to run for president in the state of Maine. This is an order of transubstantiation of the law, the understanding of which requires less legal maturity than it does a bottle of Excedrin. Of course, too, we get the inability to understand dates. Throughout the opinion, the Secretary of State writes of January 6th being a disruption of the peaceful transfer of power. Again, Charlie Brown on the pitcher's mound screaming. January 6th was not a transfer of power day. It was a vote counting day. Interrupted by one full working day, seven hours. Job was completed that night. January 20th was a transfer of power day. That was when Joe Biden was constitutionally sworn in and Donald Trump vacated his office, whose tenure ran until January 20th. He vacated peacefully. So, to prevent Donald Trump from being able to campaign in Maine, an administrator not a judge, not a lawyer, not elected by the people, took an obscure provision of the 14th Amendment, one never deployed in well over a century, and used a self-described novel theory to conflate criminal standards of evidence with civil standards of evidence based on caprice to use those civil standards of judgment to find a criminal liability to accomplish his preventing from running from president in the state of Maine. This is the perfect exemplar of the administrative state-run riot, with a heavy dose of self-arrogated power over the very constitutional norms the empowered administrator claims to be protecting and justifies using to claim protection of constitutional norms. Remember, that's what this is all about, isn't it? Protecting constitutional norms. To play off of George Orwell's poetic warning of all this, what we have here is the claim of the party, capital P, to have improved the conditions of human life and it becoming accepted in those improvements because there does not exist and never could again exist any standard against which it could be tested. This is this judgment out of Maine 
perhaps a silver lining. Perhaps there is a societal beneficence to all of this. Perhaps. But that charity will only come if two conditions obtain. One, the United States Supreme Court roundly strikes down these Maine and Washington state decisions, which I think is more than likely, if the word court has any meaning left of or to it. And two, if we use this as the teachable moment it is, with the real-time and concrete examples of what the progressive administrative state will do, the ends to which they will go, to accomplish that which they cannot get through ordinary democratic means, the effrontery to the democratic system they claim to speak on behalf of is under the very assault they conjure against their partisan opponents. The difference is they, the progressives in the administrative state, actually deploy all that they are warning against or claiming to speak up on behalf of or defend. If we are to remove ourselves from the notion too long settled here, that quad licit jovi non licit bovi, what is good for the gods is not good for the swine, or opinion regime hierarchy, the idea that Republicans and conservatives shall be subject to all manner of treasons and stratagems and spoils, to borrow from Shakespeare, while all norms can be broken to accomplish just that, the idea there is one settled upon set of legitimate opinions and one legitimate political party and perspective and that all others are unwelcome and thus unprotected here, this has to become, must become, a teachable moment. What is worrisome, because it is unanswered as of yet, but will be answered soon, soon enough, is whether there are enough millions teachable and reachable here. I'm Seth Leapson, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind, we're here for you. What is this, young David? What? You don't know. Is it a Clark Gable thing? It had to be you. Oh, nice. I'll tell you why I asked you don't if it know. was... No, this I, is a New Year's movie when Harry met Sally. Yes, I understand. When we had... Uh, the reason I asked if it was a Clark Gable movie is because you are driving us nuts with what you are doing, what, tomorrow night? Am I, baby? You're, you were invited by a dear listener to this show, Brittany, to participate in some kind of murder mystery game, reindeer game. Reindeer games. And you have to be Clark Gable. You're playing Clark Gable. And all week long, you have been memorizing and speaking to us with Clark Gable lines from movies, and it's driving us nuts. And message to Brittany, don't do this again. It's Tiffany. 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 Sorry, why did I say Brittany? Tiffany. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Tiffany, stop it. You don't want to keep inviting David to these things. He's driving us crazy. But, <laughs> but the reason I was thinking about this is yeah I don't know why I got the name wrong I'm sorry Tiffany sorry obviously um the reason I was thinking about this is because when you weren't regaling us with your Clark Gable imitations you were being obstreperous in um not pulling down some research I asked of you oh my goodness I'm 
research. I wanted you to find out a few things. For example, can you please help explain at long last Auld Lang Syne? It makes no sense to me that old acquaintance be forgot. Same movie. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. Yeah. I mean, should old acquaintance be forgot? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? Yeah. It doesn't mean that if we happen to forget them, we should remember them, which is not possible because we already forgot them. Well, maybe it just means that we should remember that we forgot them or something. Yeah, okay. <laughs> old Lang Syne is nothing more than a filthy piece of Scottish propaganda. Oh, come on. Well, it's got to be better than that. It was written in Scott. Don't we end It's a Wonderful Life with it? Uh, yes, okay. yes, we do. It was written in Scott years ago when Scotland and Britain unified and became the first iteration of the United Kingdom. I did all my research, despite what you thought, and it really means it's, it's reminiscing, and it should old times not be forgotten. It's not be forgotten. Okay. Yes. And it's a Robert Burns relation. Days right? gone by, times long past, old times, for old lang syne. Okay. For the sake of old times, you know, for uh-huh. old times' sake. All right. And it is Robert Burns, the poet, isn't it? Uh, yes, my love he, was, is, he was the poet that did it, and he was a My love is a like Scottish, a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. A, oh, is there such a thing as a Scottophile? I don't know. He was Mr. Scottish in his later days, and it's nothing more than a piece of Scottish propaganda to promote Scottish culture at a time when England was taking over (laughs) Scotland and unifying. So the British don't sing it, huh? Oh, I think they do. I think everybody does now. Oh, okay. It's in multiple different countries. I should have said the English. In Japan, the same tune is used to sing about fireflies, and in the Netherlands, it's a soccer song, or as they would call it, football. Now, the reason I brought up your recalcitrance in finding that research for me when I dispatched you to do it caused you to have to do even more research because I said, yes, just get it done. Quit acting, asking questions. I'm sending you a message to Garcia. And you go, what? I said, what? Yes. And I said, a message to Garcia. And you said, what does that mean? I said, now you have two research projects. What does that mean? What does it mean to say a message to Garcia? That's also a poem, and it's from 1899. It's not a poem. A short story. Thank you. A magazine article from 1899. It's a book. It was first published in a magazine. Okay. And it was regarding a a near impossible delivery of a message from President McKinley to General Garcia in the Cuban rebels, and it's about the resilience of man in doing so. Yes, and it was written by um, the name is Albert Hubbard. Yes, Hubbard. Yes, a relation to L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, really? And it was a very common expression yes. that meant to get the job done without cavil or question. And who was the last president to famously use that expression? Well, the last one that we have on tape, mm-hmm. and we have many of his things on tape, mm-hmm. is our good friend Dick Nixon. Mm-hmm. Right. He used it in the Watergate tapes. I think it was a a scheme he was talking about with John Ehrlichman to do something with Secretary of State Rogers, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was about that. But you know what's interesting about that book, A Message to Garcia? It used to be required reading. I don't know if it still is. Well, it's not if I didn't know what it was. No, no, at the military academies, at some of the military academies. It used to be required reading for the first year. 
Um, I don't know if it still is. But um, it brought back a fun memory for me and kind of a relationship to this show. There is at Arcadia High School a uh, annual honors and awards ceremony for the graduating students. And there is, amongst the awards, the um, Lewis E. Hallman Jr. Award. Yes, the Lewis E. Hallman Jr. Award, if that name sounds familiar. Lewis Hallman of Tuesdays on the Seth Liebson Show? His grandfather. Oh, wow. It's named after his grandfather, Hugh's father. And a wonderful student of his, Thomas Farmer, every year gives the Lewis E. Hallman Jr. Award to a valedictory student at Arcadia. And the gift is a cash prize and the book, A Message to Garcia. And a few years ago, Mr. Farmer was not available to do it. And for some reason, Hugh Hallman wasn't around to do it. So he asked me to do it. And I went back to my old alma mater and uh, gave the speech and gave the book and gave the prize to a promising student. And that's the connection to the show. Mr. Farmer writes that a mediocre teacher tells, a good teacher explains, a superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires, based on a quote from William Arthur Ward. And that to him was Lewis E. Holman Jr., a math teacher uh, from the very first faculty of Arcadia when it opened in 1959. And he taught there and coached there for some 33 years until 1992. So it was named after him. And that's where I first learned about a message to Garcia. So if you're feeling at the young age of 20 that you've missed out on not knowing what a message to Garcia meant until now, I didn't know what it meant until about four years ago. That's well, when I learned about it. That's good to know. Yeah. 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 Arcadia High School. So you're ahead of me. You're ahead of me. <laughs> I guess. Thank Mr. Holman for us knowing about a message to Garcia. I will thank him on Garcia. Tuesday when we see him. Yes. I will thank him on Tuesday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, the 960 Patriot Broadcast Studio, brought to you by the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious Metals. Um, remember last month when I had um, Gil and Troy Gillenwater on the show with me after our trip down to uh, Ajo and uh, the yes. border and all that? Um, Gil was writing this all up. He put it up in a Dropbox piece uh, uh, that I'm going to try and get around at some point somehow over Twitter maybe this weekend, talking about what he and Troy saw at the border, the one that now everyone is talking about in Lukeville. We were the only ones there, along with one other reporter from News Nation at the time. We were the first there. And he describes the scene. I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up in a moment. He said, it all seems so strange the first time we saw this. It was surreal, the mix of ethnicities, cultures, dress, and languages. This is at the Lukeville board. We need to find an English speaker so we could get the straight story without details being twisted or lost in translation. As we roamed through the crowd, I shouted, does anyone speak English? This is Gil writing. Yes, sir, I do, came a response in perfect diction. His name was Fahim, and he was from Bangladesh. I asked him how in the world he ended up here in the middle of the godforsaken Sonoran Desert. He laughed and told me, quote, everyone knows America. We all want to live in America, close quote. My brother Troy and I had learned 
Learned this from our conversations with immigrants on the migrant trails. This current influx of hundreds of thousands of immigrants was by and large not instigated by the push of life-threatening danger, but rather by the pull of the famed indulgent American lifestyle. They wanted the American dream. He went on to explain how the process worked, quoting Fahim, quote, in 2021, when you elected a new president, an invitation was announced worldwide. In fact, we called it the invitation. It was a global invitation to cross the American border illegally, declare asylum, and stay, close quote. That's what Fahim said. The invitation fueled the largest immigration crisis in the history of this country. The sheer numbers encouraged the cartels to further promote the invitation to generate generate enormous economic windfalls, windfalls. One shudders to imagine what the cartels will do with the billions of dirty dollars made off this political blunder. We don't think enough about that, do we? The money the cartels are making off this. Now, the reason I wanted to bring that up, aside from the fact that he just sent it to me, he just uh, posted it, was a story in the Arizona Republic this morning. I shall read. The mayors of Chicago, New York City, and Denver renewed pleas Wednesday for more federal help and coordination with Texas over the growing number of asylum seekers arriving in their cities by bus and plane. The mayor's requests come as U.S. cities have struggled to manage the increasing number of migrants sent from Texas and other states. Republican Governor Greg Abbott's busing operation has transported more than 80,000 migrants to Democratic-led cities since last year. His administration recently stepped up the practice with chartered planes. The mayors sharply criticized Abbott and the effort, saying buses arrive at all hours and outside designated drop-off zones with no details on who is aboard. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said at a news conference, we cannot allow buses with people needing our help to arrive without warning at any hour of day and night. Do you know, young David, what Chicago, New York City, and Denver, the two, the three cities highlighted here, have in common? Let me take a guess. Go ahead. They have Democratic supermajorities at the local level. Yes, but what I was looking for as the right answer was that they are all self-declared what they call sanctuary cities. Oh, yes. What I call nullification cities. That's what they are. They are nullifying federal law. They have for years declared themselves a thumb in the eye to the federal law enforcement of our border and of and excuse me, and against illegal immigration. And now it's coming to them. Now they're getting what they said they supported and believed was good for everyone else, but as it turns out, not themselves. And they're criticizing fellow governors or other governors, like like Abbott, for not giving them enough notice and not following the rules. Well, that's what a sanctuary city is. It's not following the rules. It's a nullification of federal law. And Nikki Haley could have pointed that out too the other day about what the Civil War was all about. The same old Democratic Party up to the same old games, anti-constitutional, dangerous to humanity, dangerous to America. Okay, what is it? 
Who is it? Yeah, it's a what to me, but yeah. Who is the McGuire sisters? Yes. What are you doing tonight? Um. Anything fun? Oh. What goes on in the life of young David? I'm actually going to see the zoo lights. Oh, are you? Yeah, we. I think we talked about this off air. We did. Yes. I wasn't listening. Yeah, I'm going to go see the zoo lights. Well, I'll be next to you. What? I'll be at the Desert Botanical Garden at Noches Luminarius. My friends, really? Yeah, my friends, the Sonuses, are playing there. People can we still should link I th- up and well, have let's a cocktail just together slow, and all that. slow it down there, Haas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you can. St- I don't know if it's sold out or not, but it's a beautiful thing. The Sonuses, who usually have our top of the hour music when it's not well, the Christmas season. Well, let me know. Where, well, they're, when, well, they're playing tomorrow night too. Well, except you're playing Clark, Clark I'm Gable playing tomorrow. Clark Gable, baby. Speaking of friends, I have interesting friends, you have to admit. I, we both do. Yeah, but mine are more interesting. <laughs> Is this a challenge? <laughs> no, just a fact. Um, all of them are on the show, aren't they? The Sonnets have been on the show. Are yeah. on the show. Tevi Troy is a good, dear friend, Tevi one Troy of our is a favorites. Great guy. Every year, you know what he does every year? Um, he's a prolific writer. He always does an end of year um, conservatives we lost. I don't know if anyone does a liberals we lost, but he always does a conservatives we lost. And it's amazing to think about some of them I had forgotten about. For example, of Paul Johnson, the great historian. I, I forgot that he died this year. And he runs runs through it. You can get it. Uh, you can get uh, Tevi's column. Uh, he writes in many different places, but this one is the Washington Examiner. Conservatives we lost in twenty twenty three. James Buckley, the last of that Buckley, um, that that Buckley brotherhood and sisterhood. Bill Buckley's brother, former senator from New York. Um, I he <laughs> I, I hope he doesn't get mad at me for saying this. But sometimes he'll call me and ask me if he's missing anyone. And I did mention to him someone that he took up. I said, you know, I think, I think, I think, and this is a callback to an earlier segment in the show this week. I said, I think Suzanne Summers could be quantified as a conservative. And um, she passed couple yep. months ago from Three's Company, right? Yeah. Three's Company came up as one of the shows that represented the 70s. And guess what he wrote? To my delight, in addition to the political people, we also lost some conservative entertainers in 2023. Suzanne Summers became famous for playing the ditzy blonde Chrissy on ABC's weekly suggestive misunderstanding that needs to get resolved sitcom, <laughs> Three's Company. Every sitcom was a misunderstanding that needs to be resolved, right? It was always a miscommunication. Every show, all the time, that's what they were about, miscommunications, right? Summers was indeed blonde, but she was no ditz, authoring 24 books and creating a successful line of beauty products. During the debate over Obamacare, she wrote in a Wall Street Journal piece, quote, first of all, let's call affordable health care what it really is. It's socialized medicine. I've had an opportunity to watch the Canadian version of affordable health care in action with all its limitations with my Canadian husband's family. Upon her death, Joe DeGeneva summed her up, saying she was a fabulous human being and she had the equally great benefit of being a great conservative. So there. So there. Tevi writes, another entertainer we lost was Gary Rosington, Leonard Skinner's last surviving original member. 
Rossington's claim to conservative fame was co-writing the song Sweet Home Alabama with Ronnie Van Sant and Ed King. They wrote the song specifically, Young David, do you know, as a rebuke to leftist singer Neil Young and his anti-Southern songs like Southern Man. Young himself later acknowledged that he had gone too far with his Dixie bashing, writing in 2012 that his song Alabama richly deserved the shot Leonard Skinner gave me with that great record. I don't like my words when I listen to it now. They are accusatory and condescending, not fully thought out and too easy to misconstrue. Rossington and his band, however, did not wait four decades to make the judgment. They pushed back in something close to real time, writing a durable hit that forever put Young in his place. Remember the lyrics? Well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her. Well, I heard old Neil put her down. Well, I hope Neil Young will remember a Southern man. Don't need him around. Anyhow. Uh, Anyway, uh, think about the people we lost this year. Uh, More well-known, of course, were people like Jim Buckley, Paul Johnson, Fred Siegel, interesting writer for City Journal um, and the Manhattan Institute, um, he um, he was a leftist who got disillusioned with what was going on in the cities and just what is going on in our cities. You were you were mentioning the massively blue streak, blue saturation of the cities that are complaining now about illegal aliens. I find illegal it immigrants. hard to think it's just a coincidence. It's not. It's not. And the fact that you know they proclaimed themselves sanctuary or nullification cities that some red state governors, prominent among them Greg Abbott and for a time and maybe still I don't know, Ron DeSantis were sending them too. You want them, you take them. You know, this shouldn't have to be someone else's problem. There was a phrase in the 70s. Bill, do you remember, did you ever learn this? It was, it was kind of obscure, but in urban planning and stuff, the phrase was NIMBY. You do remember that. And you remember what it said? Not in my backyard. Right. This was, you know, a series of – did you ever hear that? You never studied no. or learned it. Yeah, it, it's a silly word to say, but it meant not – met. I'm happy to do all of this, but just not right here where I live, you know? Just not where here – you see this with gun laws too and people who demand private security and private armed security but don't – you know, or gated communities, let's say, uh, but don't want gates at the You know, border. Bill and I have a – kind of funny little uh, question that we've asked ourselves recently. And it sort of goes this. Would you rather live in a blue state in a red town or in a red state in a blue town? Wait, Obviously. wait, wait. Do you want to live in a red town in a blue state? Let's make it clear. Okay. Do you we'll want to make the big. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get it right. Do you want to live in a red town in a blue state or a blue town in a red state? That's right. And I, I don't think, think it's things, a hard question to I answer. I think issues like this really indicate. I don't think it's a hard one to answer. Okay. What do you think the right answer is? There is I think there's I a right said that the that the local your local legislation makes up You you difference. want the red town and a blue state, right? Well, you know, if I can't have a red town and a red state. Yeah. Right? That's the right answer. The red town and the blue state is the right answer. That's what I that's what I said to Bill and yeah. I think yeah. Mr. quality Bill's, of uh, life, crime, education, safety. Homeless, yeah, you betcha, right? Good question, right answer. Well done, boys, well done. 
Portions of this show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. They have a secure investment that actually helps people and the investors. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return with Y-Refi, and it's not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. The investment comes with a ton of flexibility. You're in control. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees. There's peace of mind. There is no attack on principle if you ever need your money back. And, of course, you get a monthly statement with no surprises. This secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi may be a better option for you than where you have some of your money now. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. I like looking at end-of-year columns. And uh, there were three I want to commend. Uh, ben Shapiro has a pretty good one at Town Hall, The Lessons of 2023. Uh, speaking of friends, uh, Josh Hammer over at uh, Newsweek has a great one over at Newsweek. Uh, a 2024 wish list, Sanity at Home and Stability Abroad. He uh, itemizes uh, several things that uh, we should be taking on in 2024. Uh, the second one is interesting. It actually links to an article I wrote, um, but it has to do with America's drug overdose epidemic. That's a really good one. And I was surprised to see this, but happy to see this. Uh, Peggy Noonan, who gives and takes, had a pretty good end-of-year column. She wrote this, which seems to be part and parcel of the theme I've been working on with you all all week, and I'll quote her directly. Quote, adults have a particular responsibility to model and set a template for the young. It is a primary job of the adults in the room, whatever the room is, to show every day in dress, speech, and comportment what being adult looks like. At least two generations have come up with no idea. Our national style has grown crude and vulgar. This entered Washington some years back, and that only made it worse. It's a little sad. Washington used to be old-fashioned, which was one of its charms. It was a throwback. Decades ago, you smiled because female members of Congress in their suits and high-button blouses dressed like aspiring librarians. Now some dress like aspiring prostitutes. Can I get in trouble for saying that? Let's find out. Anyway, one of my favorite columns this year of mine cuffed Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer for banishing the Senate's dress code and bowed to the need of Senator John Fetterman, who found it emotionally necessary to dress like a child. America likes the idea of its preeminence in the world, but the preeminence entails obligations. You have to act the part. You have to present yourself with dignity. Mr. Schumer reinstated the dress code. And I'll make an aside here. Ever since, how much better has John Fetterman become? Yeah, interesting that. We got some great guests coming up. Rabbi Alush and Eric Twist, we're covering the gamut. Be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.